Jim Henson Studios. Joined by Ramon Perez, who is the artist of Jim Henson's A Tale of Sand, which is releasing in the fall from Archaea Entertainment. And this story is one of uh, Henson's long-lost screenplays. No one has ever seen it before. Uh, Henson wrote it in the late 60s, early 70s, and now, Ramon, you are doing the art of the book. So what does it feel like having the opportunity to work on this project with you know, a legend such as Jim Henson? Uh. No pressure at all. Um, it's actually it's it's quite actually it's quite fantastic um, uh, being a part of a legacy that uh, of a creator that I grew up with, and now like thirty years later, I get to be a part of his continuing legacy, having uh, something he created directly, not even something that's just based on a property. It's something he wrote with uh, uh, with Jerry Jewell back in the sixties and seventies, and now you know thirty years later, I'm translating it, I'm putting it down on paper, and so that's. That's the, the really fantastic and overwhelming part where I know like after, I, after I'm done with it, this, this one will be on the bookshelves as part of the, the Henson legacy and the Archaea legacy for that matter of, uh, of um, inspiration that maybe kids will pick up and go, wow, I want to become a storyteller or a, or a filmmaker or whatever. But they'll, you know, they'll, they'll take that inspiration from the story. Now, uh, this story is, is Stephen Christie. He did an interview uh, with by Fox, uh, it was in Chicago, I believe, yeah. and he's basically said that it was an experimental story for Henson at the time. There's no Muppets, this isn't a puppet story. Uh, nope. It's his version of the American Southwest. It's a dark uh, fairy tale parable. Mm -hmm. So how do you believe your artistic style complements this tone of the work? Um, oh, wow, that's an interesting question. I never thought about that. Um, I think... Um, I've always felt that I'm a, a strong storyteller when it comes to pacing and um, and uh, basically the visual medium of comic books. I never, I, I came into comic books late as a, as a reader. Like uh, I grew up more on film um, and science fiction books, and uh, the comic strip for me growing up was like the newspaper strips, like Garfield and you know, BC and all that stuff. And um, and then as I got into comic books. Um, it was it seemed like a natural progression for me as a as a kid for the the medium and I fell in love with it, and um, I think that's the strength I bring into it. I think is being raised by all these exterior mediums and so, especially loving film as a medium and now now adapting a screenplay that was meant for film, I can kind of push and pull the screenplay I think better than uh, a normal comics illustrator who just works directly from scripts all the time does. And also being a writer myself of my own properties, I'm often pacing out things as well. So, um, like I was handed the uh, Archaea just handed me the script directly and said, "Adapt this," and which is probably the most uh, fantastic thing they could have done. Like they, 
if they had said, you know, you know, you want to adapt this, we're going to get a writer to adapt the screenplay, and then you can adapt that, I would have been like, oh, that's not as much fun. It gave you your own freedom to yeah, give your own take exactly. on it. Exactly. So I was able to take his script and kind of like pull, pull out parts that were amazing and then compress and shorten parts for effect. And so really just play with it as I believe he would have played with had he, been, had he filmed it himself. Now, uh, from what I've been able to read about this, it sounds pretty meta. Yes. So what's your target audience for something like this? I mean, not to necessarily slap an age on it, but who is your target audience for this book? That's a, it's funny. I've been asked that question a lot, and I think this story appeals to many different people on different levels. Like, I think a, a young child of, like, I don't know, nine, ten, could enjoy this basically on the sheer surface level of the story. But then I think an adult going in could enjoy it for that aspect, but also as well for the meta levels attached to it. So I think it could appeal to a very broad range of readers. Like artistically, I think, um, you know, I, I, to be honest, I didn't really, I've never had ages in mind when, you know, working, it's actually to, to jump to one of my own, not to like cross, you know, Promote, but to work like uh, I, I have my own webcomic Kukuburi, which I took to a few different publishers before going to the web. And one publisher was interested, but they were like, "Okay, we need to youngify this and make it appealing to um, a younger audience because clearly, based on the art, it's geared at um, you know a, a young reader's age. Uh, so we'll make the girl less, you know, like put like some longer sleeves on her so she's more covered up and." We'll have to tone down the language a little bit and stuff like that. And I was like, and at that point, I was like, why? Why would I want to do that? So like, I, I said that's why I ended up doing it on the web because I was like, it allowed me the freedom to do a story that could appeal to any age. And I do receive emails from people like um, the great thing about the great thing about doing comics on the web is you got your analytics and you can see what age groups, especially through things like Facebook and stuff like that. So I know my readership is as young as 12 and as old as 60 on that series. And and I know some adults read it to their children. And you know what I mean? But, and I think the best stories are done that way. Like when you have uh, a, 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 a tale that's not really positioning itself to focus on one readership or one age group, it's just a good story and it'll, It'll be uh, it'll be accepted by all and enjoyed by all on different levels. You know, like like just you know making you know like when Spielberg took out the guns in the in the reissue of ET. I'm like, why? Yeah, the guns scared? Walkie -talkies, I mean, right? Yeah, I mean like why? Like I was a kid. I well, I saw it. Like I wasn't scared of guns for the rest of my. I mean like I think there's a lot of pablum to our our being fed to to younger audiences, especially. I think I think a young reader could actually quite enjoy. A Tale of Sand as well and an older reader could enjoy it and that but enjoy it that much more because they can see the other levels in it especially if they maybe do even more research into Jim and stuff like that and they can see part of him himself in the story as well yeah I mean absolutely I mean a book that comes to mind from Archaea that you know is kind of a kid's book but that really plays to adults is Return of the Dapper Men mm -hmm. I mean the layers in that book is just phenomenal so I mean what you're saying here with the Tale of Sand like yes a kid can enjoy it yeah. but at the same time an adult can walk away with so much more yeah and also yeah same thing with like their, their mouse guard like you have visually it looks like it should be a kid's book but it's some just great stories that can you know I'm a you know 30-year-old guy is flipping through it and loving it. You know, I mean, like, it's just mice people, but I mean, like, I love it. You know, so yeah, I think, I think at the end of the day, you need to, I think stories like this and, and what Arkea is doing is, is definitely geared towards a, a wide gamut of people. And I think 
uh, I think yeah, a wide range of people can enjoy this one from so young to old. Would you say there's some replay value in reading this one? I mean, if you read it the oh. first time through, you're going to get something and then take it again and oh, definitely. you're going to get something totally different. I'm still rereading it as I draw because I'm constantly referencing the script and I'm still picking up nuances that I missed the first time around. Like when I, I read it in one go the first time and I was like, wow, this is a bizarre, quirky story. Like it's just weird. And then... <laughs> Obviously, I read it. I had to read it again as I'm adapting it and stuff like that. And I was like, wow, this is this. Oh, okay, I'm seeing things here I missed the first time. And I'm like, and it's just like every read, it's been doing like, because I'll like stop and I'll reread scenes as I'm working on them and stuff like that. And um, it definitely adds like every time you read it, there's, you're discovering something more, whether it's just like analogies or uh, aspects of, uh, of Jim himself in the stories or just commentaries on life in general or maybe uh, of things of the era when it was written there's a there's a lot of stuff there that like you know you could read this thing a half a dozen times and i think get something new every time so how does that affect your process like you just said you're going back and rereading every page you do kind of thing are, are you going back and making edits or are you kind of like no i've done it i'm leaving it moving on yeah I, I I, i'm not doing, i'm not doing edits because i think what i'm doing is um like i'm still capturing the the script um as close to what Jim's vision could have been or like would have been had he done it himself. Um, obviously, I'm doing it through my eyes, but um, I think what I'm saying is like just the elements of the story that are there constantly, but you just kind of see them in different light as you kind of... Because it's funny, once you read the script full circle, like full, full all the way through, it kind of takes... You, it, the ending makes... the it, it takes it to another level kind of thing. So you're like, oh okay and then you go read it again so it, it's it's just a, a great script which i've like yeah I, um uh, sorry i just lost train my, my train of thought but um yeah it's it's definitely a rereader and i'm not it hasn't affected me like going back in and discovering things it hasn't affected the art because for the most part i'm still it's not like i, I found something that i missed it's just something that like that i drew that i kind of like was like oh all right, I don't know how I missed that, like from a just from a, a story point, not from a visual standpoint, um, but also from a visual standpoint, uh, to add my own uh, little, you know, trying to pepper the the cast and everything with as much stuff as I can, so that if people do reread it numerous times, they'll, they'll pick up on they'll pick up nonsense. other visual things. Yeah. Like the bar, there's a bar sequence later in in the story where there's going to be so many characters packed into that thing that like. There'll be background guys that are no bigger than like you know a square centimeter that people will be able to like look at and go, I missed this guy the first time, but you know he's back there and you know he's you know maybe I'll, st I'll sneak Stephen Christie in there you know, <laughs> playing the trombone in the background. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, speaking of Stephen again, on that interview he did, he mentioned that uh, the setting is almost a character in and of itself. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so. Kind of explain to us how what that meant to you and how you made that happen. How in your style and your work, how did you make the setting a character? I like how I'm, how I'm having to explain all his comments. <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> um, I think um, uh, the the desert's like a, a the most of the majority of the story takes place in the, in the uh, North American, um, I guess southwest of the desert area. I'm not sure exactly where that is, but. Um, I tried to pepper the the landscape that Mac kind of traverses for the story with as much life instead of just drawing some rocks and calling it a desert, you know, like because like people think desert, they think barren, they think like a desolate wasteland. But if you actually like you know do some research, there's like 
thriving, you know, plant life and like animal life and everything. So like, and even the 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 um, the rocks. I don't know structures is the wrong word, but the mountains, the mesas, the like some of these things. I'm like, I, I look at them and go, how are these things created? Like these these like large pillars where the rock on the top is bigger than the rock on the like it's like stuff you see in Looney Tunes but then you actually look it up on the on the like and you'll see a photo I'm like all right that's actually happens through some weird weathering erosion thing or whatever and so as I try to do all that research and like I'm trying to bring all that and give the, the landscape as much life as I can uh, as, a, as a backdrop of the book as well so just you know because it, it, it very much the whole thing takes place with a couple of a uh, few set pieces within the desert but overall it's like he's just traversing this this landscape going from you know rocks to sand to pits to like mountains and it's 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 kind of fun to just discover this this uh the, this visual landscape that you know people kind of just go oh yeah desert yeah nothing does it all only take place in that location or well he's he's traversing from he's got a map and he's making he's doing his journey and uh, from point A to point B, he's con- he's going. He starts off in a town, and then he kind of just goes out on this adventure. And uh, the town's like an old western kind of town, like you might have seen in one of the old Muppet movies or something. And um, but after that, he leaves. He's uh, he's in this yeah this desert landscape. And not to say that there's not there's plenty of interesting things he runs into in the desert, like but. Uh, things you might find and things you might not find normally in the desert, <laughs> and uh, and there's also a couple of other towns he run, he comes across and, and stuff like that. So there are other um, you know structural like man-made things that he runs into, but for the most part, his journey takes place through a through a, a very kind of surreal desert landscape. So I mean, you just mentioned some internet references, you know, mm-hmm. for the landscape. You also referenced your own film experience, mm-hmm. um, but what have you? majorly drawn upon as your visual influences for this book I think the biggest inspiration for the the, the pacing and the um, uh, the visual storytelling I guess um, has been one thing was uh, Jim Henson's timepiece because I'd never seen it before uh, and Arkea and Jim Henson company were kind enough to send it along to me as a, you know it's like a 10 minute short I think or eight minutes and it's cut very fast, right? It's yeah, it's it's cut fast. It's a lot of just a staccato of images with music. There's no dialogue in it. Um, it's just sound, color, and just editing of like a, a short film. And I tried to capture. I think it's like the little sister of what Tale of Sand would have been had Jim made it into a feature length film. And I think so. I'm trying to capture that feeling. That kind of erratic um, um, delivery that he gave with that short as well as involving how he involved color and because uh, he talks about music a lot in this Tale of Sanskrit as well so clearly I can't score any music <laughs> and have uh, Arkea include a, a CD um, but <laughs> but uh, um, so I'd be trying to uh, which one thing Jim did in, in a lot of the shorts was use color as well to accent sound. So I'm trying to you know work with the colors as well to to create the sound through the color and the visuals as well. And um, and the other big influence uh, has been manga on a lot of. Uh, I'm not a heavy manga reader, but the one the series that I do enjoy. Uh, one of my favorites being the um, long running. Oh, I'm blanking on the name now. Blood. A tale. No. Blade of the Immortal. Blade, Blade of the Immortal, yeah. yeah. And, but the one thing I love about uh, the way uh, they do comics is 
like I, there's a couple of trades I have like where one issue is a standoff with two people like it's just a fight for like 60 pages or something but you know th that would never fly in American comics it would be like two pages double sprayed you're, you're done that's over on to the next part and so being, adapting the script directly it's allowed me to, to pull out sequences and get emotional uh, get the kind of like touch upon the emotional um, resonance of those sequences so whether it's a uh, him just walking and trying to like suffering from the heat or something to drag that out and really make the reader feel like they're feeling that heat or if there's like a, a busy bar scene and peppering the the shots like um i find the mignola does this actually quite well um where he'll pepper the scene with like just odd panels that there's no you don't have to look at them in any order but they're all there and they create a moment or a scene so whether it's like a you, you cut away to a bird on a branch or you cut away to like 50 people in a bar, whatever it might be, it's all uh, creating moments. So actually there's a couple of sequences in A Tale of Sand where, um, especially in the beginning, where I tried to create elements where you don't you don't have to actually read the, the panels from left to right. You could look at them all and start at any one point on the page and they all tell, they all kind of just fill you in on a moment. They're not telling a sequential story, but they're all filling you in on a moment of that story. And then as the story progresses, they all kind of collapse into sequential form where they're then you read them in a while for you know a b c d e kind of thing you know panel to panel and then we'll break away from that again and create moments and stuff like that so it's been very i'd be trying to push the envelope um uh storytelling wise trying to do stuff that i've never done before um i'm not sure if comics has ever seen it before because i've never read every comic out there but uh <laughs> what? Stephen christie's uh being constantly pushing this has to be we're pushing the envelope here and I'm glad he, he's, he's, he's kind of pushing that note because I think it's definitely a film that would have pushed the envelope had to be made. So I think making it into a graphic novel and trying to push beyond the boundaries, you know, and go into places where like, you know, uh, Mazza Kelly's uh, Asterius Polyp kind of just went Amazing there. Book. Yeah, went there and you're like, wow, that no comic has gone here before. So I'm, I'm no, I'm no Mazza Kelly, but I'm trying to, you know, do, <laughs> do my bit and try to, try to make it a, uh, my, my first foray into pushing the envelope of storytelling kind of thing. So kind of on the topic of inspiration, um, I watched an interview you did at C2E2. Okay. And you did mention that, I think this is going to be very inspirational to some people walking so. away from, but you didn't really expand on that. Can you kind of, um, I'm not without revealing anything, but just say on kind of what level, how are people going to walk away from this feeling inspired and how do you hope to well, I think, uh, I think there are certain I think there are certain stories in the, in the catalog of, of, or generations or worlds like when you know like for me growing up a movie like Star Wars really it was something I'd never seen before as a kid you know it was just like it blew me away and it definitely inspired me to do what I'm doing today you know maybe it's not like right there I was like I'm gonna be a comic book artist no <laughs> by no means but it definitely inspired me to uh, let my imagination just go wild kind of thing and I think that one of the greatest things is when when you create something whether it be a tale of sand or other moments in graphic novel or movie history or, or whatever, it's like where people can read it and take away something personal or be inspired to do something that they may have never considered or gone down that path had they not picked up that book or that or seen that film. And you don't know what that element is. It's that, it's that X factor that, you know, like, you know, like, Star Wars was a mishmash of like Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and a bunch of other Kurosawa films, you know, but he delivered something that touched upon 
something that like he took what his inspirations were and then kind of coalesced them into a package and then that kind of inspired the next generation uh, some say for better or worse um, but uh, uh, but I think yeah so certain things like uh, one thing I hope Tail Sand does is like it takes people because it's so quirky it's so unlike anything out there today I think uh, in, in comics and film for that matter that I think People just go. At first glance, I go, "This is bizarre. Like, what? What is? You know, this doesn't. There's no logical sense why this. You know, this character is in this spot. You know, but at that point, you're like going, "There is no logic here. It's it's a tale. It's a tale running through imagination. It's running through uh, uh, like a, a man's mind almost kind of thing. And so almost anything goes. And and I think a lot of people today are really kind of tied down with making things work." You know, story-wise, and just like not—I know, like I have friends when we go see movies, and it's just like, oh, I don't like that because that plot hole was so obvious, it didn't work, and whatever, and blah blah blah. And I'm like, well, you know what I mean? If you just shut that part of your brain off and just enjoy it for what it is, like, sure, yeah, there might have been a plot hole or you know whatever, it was still pretty amazing overall. Like I remember, like you know, people are gonna hate me for this, but for example, when I saw uh, *Phantom Menace*, you know, by no means does it stand up to the original trilogy, but when I saw Jar Jar Binks for the first time, as annoying, as annoying as he was, I was like looking at this fully realized CG character that was like pretty awesome. Like I was like this much of an idiot of a character it was. It was like it was like this like before. Well, no, I'm just I'm just saying like it was like CG of that point had not. Like, we'll edit this part out. Yeah. No, but I was saying like from a, a creative standpoint, like it was like something that had never been realized before. Yeah. And, uh, and now they've even made it better, like, where, like, you know, like, you're, I'm trying to think of, like, current examples, but, or, like, even, like, uh, District 9 or something, or, or where the aliens in that, you're just, like, they're, they could be real, had you not... Yeah, it, that came out in 99, so... Yeah, exactly, yeah, so it's, it's, that's, like, 10 years ago, so, or, or more, but, um, but, yeah, so, I don't know, I think certain things just inspire, and, yeah, like, I think you don't know what that, that element will be, but I think this one... I think this the story is it's inspiring me to work on it. Like it's the the script is like is so well thought out and so um, creatively just pushing its envelope that it was such an ease to adapt because it, it was that that inspiring to work on. And I'm hoping that inspiration, my inspiration, will translate into people looking at it going, "Wow!" and maybe take something from that. Whatever that is, they take away from it, whether it's story, life, or whatever. It's just hopefully you know takes them somewhere. And I, I know you're still working on the book, mm -hmm. um, but so far, has there been a, any major challenge you can kind of touch on that was kind of like a hurdle in, in, the, in the creative process or just anything, like, you know? Uh, the biggest hurdle is just, just keeping on track, I think, to make sure the book is done in a timely fashion. I think um, from a creative standpoint, um, the, 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 the storytelling, the art has become... I guess like in the beginning you're getting like every artist I don't know I get, you have to get accustomed to a character because um, you know as the artist and you're, you're, you're casting that character visually and so I guess it took me maybe like maybe 20 pages to get Mac the lead character kind of down pat how I knew his face worked and his body language so after I did that I kind of went back into the first run of pages that I did and kind of retweaked them to match the his visual kind of voice or, or stance or how we look, whatever you want to call it. So I think, um, but I wouldn't, really wouldn't call that a hurdle. I think it's just, that's naturally part of the process. Like, um, this has probably been one of the easiest kind of 
adaptations uh, like you know just taking something from word to pictures it's come so so fluidly that is that because you've been given the freedom to do what you want i think that's part of it and but i think it's also that there's no yeah there's no uh panel to panel breakdown so i can i can push and pull as i like and also uh the the script is so uh visually like descriptive like it like he describes the the pattern on the villain's tie, you know what color the tie is, what pattern is on it, you know, and what he's wearing, and so it's like so everything he was he had a vision, like he knew what he wanted, and he like described the characters and described, you know, and you you get a as soon as you read that you get immediately get you create an image in your head of what these guys look like or would have looked like, you know, whether it be the villains or even like secondary characters that only appear for a page, but you have them and you come in and you're like. Wow, I, that's that's like right in there. Like I've read novels where I don't know what the main character looked like after even reading the whole book because <laughs> the, the the writer just did not describe them sufficiently enough. So I just it's a shadowy figure in my brain as I read the whole book. But this one was like as soon as the, he described them, they they kind of coalesced in my mind's eye, and it was very easy to take that. Can you tell us about the villain a little bit? I don't know. Can I tell them about the villain? <laughs> I mean, just, just tease it just a tease you know um, he's a, he's a, it's actually interesting if you watch A Tale of Sand I'm sorry you don't watch A Tale of Sand well, if you watch Timepiece um, uh, there's a, a moment where where Jim's in that that short and he's wearing a, a tuxedo um, and running across the screen and he's almost visually exactly what the villain looks like in in A Tale of Sand and um the, it's funny because the, the villain in, in Attila Sand, uh, aside from visually, like what he looks like, is he, he, he's Mac's adversary, but he's also, I think, strangely Mac's um, helper as well. Like, it's, it's weird. I think it's like this interesting, um, he's helping him, but he's also, almost by being his adversary, adversary he's helping him, is, if that makes any sense. Sure. It, it's, it, it, I don't want to reveal too much because then it just reveals my interpretation of meta levels and I want readers to take away their own sure. interpretation. But um, he's a cool guy. Every, like, the one complaint I got is from a few people who have looked at the, um, the, uh, my roughs and the, the, the pencils and especially the colorist who I'm working with, she's looked at it and she's like, my only complaint is, is there's not enough of the villain in this book. <laughs> He's so cool. We want more of him. Can you add more pages of the villain? And I'm like, I, I can't do that. It's not in the script. So that's the one biggest complaint I've heard about the villain so far. Like He's not in it enough. So. Can you give us just a little hint on what the MacGuffin is in this? I, I, I don't want to do that because it reveals no. too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah once you, it's like okay. it's like okay. telling someone like you know like Empire Strikes Back. Can't believe he was Luke's father. <laughs> You're like no. So yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, if you yeah, it would just tell too much of the tale, and you know, I think that's something a reader has to discover sure. on their own. Now this book, it's uh, 120 pages, mm -hmm. and what's kind of cool. 160 pages. Yeah, it's growing. We're blowing it up. Excellent. 160 Kaboom. pages, and it's coming out on Henson's 75th birthday, correct? Uh, hopefully. Oh, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. But so it's coming out in the fall. Okay, it's coming out in the fall. But um, now it's the first thing that he's written since, or that's being published that he has written since he has passed away. Yes. Um, just on a personal level, what's you know what's your favorite Henson work? Ah, interesting. Um, for me, I, I'll be honest with you, the, the Muppets, like the Muppet Show, always has a soft spot in my heart. Like I grew up with Kermit Fozzie, and then the Muppets Tonight with like Pepe Le Pron and you know all these guys. 
Um, those guys will always hold the lead in any kind of like as much as I enjoyed Dark Crystal and That's the Labyrinth. You know, they're visually amazing, but they never I don't know, for some reason never lured me in as much as the Muppets. And probably the last thing that I, I loved, but I guess Jim wouldn't have had a hand in it because it was after his passing, was uh, Farscape, which was what I thought. It was like my new Star Wars. I thought it was a super awesome, well-realized kind of galaxy kind of tale, like space opera. But uh, so those are my two favorites anyways. Cool. Um, now, the project is, has been supervi- supervised by Lisa Henson, his mm-hmm. daughter, correct? Yes. So what's that been like working with her as she oversees your portion of, of the storytelling? Uh, it's been really cool. Like, I've never, up until today, actually, I, uh, this morning I met Lisa for the first time and, and had uh, lunch with her, and she was super fantastic. Like, she's given me some notes indirectly through Stephen and Chris um, on the project, and uh, every note she made is, was was a valid note, like you know, stuff like the reveal scene of this character should be bigger, or uh, you know, the pacing here is a bit confusing. Can we fix that up a little bit? Um, and yeah, it was great. Like there, it's the the whole team has been pretty awesome to work with because everybody's kind of given their input, and you know, we're it, it's 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 just a more kind of cross pollination of ideas that I've ever had on a project where you know, like people are. Constructive. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's all intelligent, constructive criticism, and she's you know like like I don't deal with her directly, so I can't speak too much to how she's dealing with Arcade. But like I basically send in my my pencils or whatever, and then they forward them onto her, and she kind of gives a, a once over kind of thing. And um, I've received nothing, no no big complaints. And today she was uh, jubilant, uh, as excited as to like the art, having like holding it in her hands and. You know, she was grinning and loving it. So I was like, that was, I was like, oh, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. (laughs) She's not tearing them up and throwing them off. Yeah. So let's just shift gears for a sec, Mm -hmm. just to, as we're closing out here. Um, Tell us about your creator on book, Kookaburry. Is that correct? Yeah. uh, That's a web endeavor I started back in 2007. And unfortunately, it's been on hiatus for about a year now, just due to my schedule. Sure. it's it's actually kind of actually funny because it's it has similar um, uh, a similar feeling to a tale of sand I guess it's it's a journey of a character's journey through her not her subconscious but her kind of like life and commentary and stuff like that but um, I basically wanted to create a a, a a story where anything goes so this girl uh, Nadia enters this other world which I call the in between. Um, that uh, basically anything flies in this world, and I wanted to, like I wanted it to be inspiring to you know readers and, and, and take the, where they could just go, wow, this is I've never seen. It. I'm not professing to do anything overly original with it. I just wanted to create something that was like visual candy where they could just sit in awe and like you know like your first time seeing you know Lord of the Rings and going, wow, this is all you know or, or whatever it might be, whatever property or, or book or story like and. Um, so yeah, the the project's been on hiatus for now for about a year, but as soon as I'm finished Tale of Sand, I will be actually returning, and uh, I've been talks with uh, different people about publishing it, and uh, hopefully, you know, finally finishing the complete arc of, of the trilogy. So um, I'm pretty excited to get back to it. But yeah, it's uh, I have a ton of stories buried in my subconscious and in my little black book where I write them all down <laughs> all the time, and. Uh, as I was telling Stephen earlier today, I was like, every story will be told in due time. Like, well, you know, you know, right now I'm, you know, cutting my teeth on Tale of Sand, but after that, back to Kookaburi, and then after that, maybe who knows, a Western, a space opera, 
you know, the, 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 the genre of comics is so vast that, you know, I've dabbled a little bit in superheroes and I've had fun. And I think I'm, you know, unless someone offers me a super opportunity doing something uh, super heroic, I think I'd like to play in, a, in, the, in the vaster pool of, of stuff. And um, especially work towards actually become like, you know, I create our own uh, individual I'm writing and drawing my own stories but real quick to talk about that superhero stuff you yep. did just have uh, recently some books come out from Marvel yep, I did yep. you had the Captain America and the first 13 which mm-hmm. one was it? Uh, the one with uh, uh, Agent 13 uh, it took place in World War II sure uh, written by Catherine Eminen. Uh it was a joy the one thing I've been lucky with in mainstream comics uh, I haven't done a lot of work I've done some some jobs just peppered here and there. You did there. Deadpool team up as well, right? I did Deadpool team up. I did a short arc with B. Clay Moore uh, a couple years ago in uh, JSA Classifieds. Uh, I've done little short ones here and there. And, but the one thing I've, I've really been lucky, and it kind of actually also even goes on the tail of sand, is I've worked with great writers the whole time. Uh, whether it be B. Clay, Catherine Eminent, and Scotty Young, who wrote Deadpool team up. Uh, their stories really are, are they create fun stories that are fun to play play with and so um, when I say superhero stories like when I mentioned superhero stories like I wouldn't really they'd have to offer me something amazing it's not that I like for me it wouldn't be like hey do you want to work on Batman I'd be like oh that'd be cool but who's writing it right you know for me it's, it's more like who do I get to share that creative moment with so the like for all this project, all the projects I've actually been on in mainstream comics, the writers have chosen me for the most part, uh, or requested me to the, the editors as the artist for that book. So, which is a compliment, a big compliment that I'm, I have to thank them for to no end. Um, but it also creates a, a dynamic, which is great because we're working more of us as a team rather than a signed kind of like you're the writer, you're the artist, go make something. It's like there's a lot of back and forth and, and stuff, and, and it's been a great. Fun. So if someone said, you know, you know, so and so is writing this, you want to work on it? And I'm like, yes. You know, <laughs> I don't care if it's Angar the Screamer from Marvel, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> if you it's know. the right writer, you'll take. Yeah, the right exactly. Writer. It could be the dumbest character, but I know if it's the right writer, they'll make it sing. So. Yeah. And um, real quick, that, nope. uh, that you did do the cover for X Men First Class Cyclops, right? Is that no. You? no, nope, nope. You've been miscredited then. What really? Yes. I got a cover credit. You did. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> should look into that. All right, but wait. Being from Toronto, just yep. on a more fun level. Hockey fan? Uh, not really. I, I, I actually, I'm a big hockey fan during the Olympics. Sure. Uh, but during the. But the, you're not a Leafs fan. I'm not. Uh, go Leafs. <laughs> I, I love. I love the Leafs as you know as much as uh, every other artist I know in Toronto. No, I'm just, you're a Sabres fan. It's okay. Actually, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. Growing up, they were my favorite team. The Sabres. Yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> I think it was just a kick because I thought they had the coolest logo ever. They do have an awesome logo <laughs> and a great color scheme. Yeah. And I was like, wow, there's like a buffalo and saber. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> Although their mascot isn't a sword. But that's okay. No. <laughs> um, are you hitting up any cons this year? Um, I will be at San Diego Comic Con uh, this July. And I have plans to attend New York Comic Con as well as possibly a couple of shows in uh, in Spain and Poland over the over the fall as well. Very cool. Yeah. So. Any closing thoughts on a tale of sand? Uh, pick it up and escape into a fantastic place. <laughs> it's awesome. Just it, it, uh, you know, I hope everybody enjoys it when, uh, when they pick it up. Awesome, Ramon. Thanks for coming on, man. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Cheers.